0: The following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitanoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. And now, here's Dr. Dan. Well, good morning. If you have your copy of the scriptures, join me, if you would, in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 21, but keep your uh, keep your places there. We're going to look at, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So the first two chapters of Acts is sort of difficult to decide where to break off one sermon and begin the next. So we have a lot to cover today. The other day I, I had a conversation with someone who, they kind of shared with me that in their childhood experience at church, it seemed like the emphasis was always on the wrath and judgment of God. The wrath and judgment of God. And as I listened, I thought, you know, from what I've heard and know, and I can remember even as a kid and seeing sort of the tail end of that approach to preaching, I said, well, there's some truth to that. But it seems like the pendulum has swung the other way. And in many pulpits across the United States, anyway, the emphasis is always on the holiness, I'm sorry, the... The mercy, grace, and love of God. But the truth is, and I remember learning this, this came to me, I had an epiphany a long time ago when I was in sales and thinking about preaching the gospel. The epiphany I had was this. I said, you know, when I was learning how to sell items, I would immediately jump to the discount that was available on the product I was selling without ever establishing why the client needed the product In the first place, Bob was over here shaking his head like, see, that's what you're doing wrong, son. And you're 100% correct. Why am I saying this? When you and I don't understand the wrath and justice of God, we don't understand why the grace, love, and mercy of God are so spectacular. In our passage this morning, our verse that we're going to begin with, We see something like the balance held, the the balance is held with the wrath of God, the justice of God, but also the mercy and grace of God. And it shows up in one verse. Let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to spend together in the Word. I thank you for uh, this new song that you have inspired us to sing from the Scriptures. We, We pray for our worship service today that the Word of God would dwell richly in our hearts to both challenge us and encourage us, help us to see you more vividly and understand how great your grace was to meet the needs of our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in our verse, two things, you can easily miss it, but it's sort of hidden there in plain sight. For us to be saved requires the grace and mercy of God. But it also, for that verse to make any sense, has to also have behind it the reality that judgment and wrath is coming. You can't need grace and mercy from God and salvation unless justice, judgment, and wrath are hot on your heels. In our, the whole context of our passage, this verse was preached to people for whom, like us, justice was hot on our heels. The other day, I, as I thought this through, and I can I can think of people in our culture, whether it's in movies or music, or just people in life, normal people thinking about, can God really forgive me for what I've done? If a person has been unfaithful to their spouse, they might wrestle the question, will God forgive me for this? And I can say, yes, but that doesn't necessarily get everything squared away with your spouse, but yes, God forgives. The person who's a drug addict might wonder, can God really forgive me? Is it possible to be redeemed from this mess? And all the things that I've done that have gone along with my drug addiction, will God forgive me of that? What you're really asking is, is God able to save me? This shows up in in movies and music. There's a song uh, from an old group, it's called Wood, W-O-U-L-D, question mark. They ask this line, Am I wrong? Have I gone too far to get home? And there's a movie that I used to really love. I don't know all the... Whenever I quote a movie or a song, that doesn't mean I like like and agree with everything in the movie or, or the song, but... There was a movie that came out about 15 or 20 years ago. It was called Man on Fire. And it, it starred Denzel Washington and that kind of creepy guy, Christopher Walken, was in it. But there's a story of the two men's life together. There's a, they worked together in the CIA and they had done some things sort of behind the scenes to protect and defend our country and advance the, the mission of our country. But the, the two men, one, kind of the way he handled the grief that he felt for what he had done is he kind of... He just kind of got, got married and had kids uh, and he went to birthday parties and just lived it up. Little kids' parties, trying to be normal. And, but Denzel Washington's character, he struggled. And there's a scene in the movie where Denzel Washington's character, John Kreese, comes up and says, do you think God will forgive us for what we've done? And then the other character says, no. What they were wrestling with is God really able to save us but christians also do this maybe not with ourselves we we know that god can forgive anyone we know that god will save anyone we know that god can do all things but sometimes we will look at somebody and decide that no they can't they're not likely to be saved i mean we've got statistics to bear this out the person once they get past high school are not likely to be saved they're not likely to give their life to christ and so we will look at uh, the pastor's kid and assume he's more likely to be saved Than the prisoner. But the truth is the same miracle that's necessary for my own children to come to faith in Christ is the same miracle that the prisoner needs. One of the things that we do sometimes as people, whether it's we're wrestling with God, whether God can forgive us or whether God can save someone else, we're really wrestling with the question: is God able to save? In our passage this morning, Acts 2, verse 14 through through 41. Here's what's going on. Some some God actually is reaching out and saving some of the hardest people to reach. Religious people. Religious people had thought they were right with God, but had demanded that Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, be persecuted. And then here's what happens. In Acts chapter one, Jesus he 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 hangs out with the disciples for 40 days after he's resurrected. He teaches them some more and he says, Hey, go hang out in Jerusalem. I'm going back to heaven. You go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up, and what's going on is prophecy from the Old Testament is being fulfilled. While it's being fulfilled, some of the very people who wanted Jesus crucified were mocking when God was fulfilling prophecy. These were people who needed an explanation. So the Holy Spirit came, they baptized the believers, filled the believers there. They spoke in the glory of God in other languages that they had never learned. And the onlookers were bewildered, astounded, and amazed. They had been there in Jerusalem for this Feast of Pentecost. They heard the commotion, and they came to investigate what was going on, and they hear all these uneducated people speaking of the glories of God in languages they had never learned before. These weren't Harvard graduates. These were people from backwater town Galilee. They didn't go to high school. So how were they speaking with such eloquence of the glory of God in languages, our mother tongue, knowing full well that they had not been to school? Others, however, said, they're drunk. That's what it is. And so they needed an explanation, whether they were Confused or interested or mocking, they needed an explanation. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is moved to stand and deliver. And what a message he gives them. The first thing we see in verses 14 through 21 is he told them that the day of God's judgment is approaching. Look at the text with me. But Peter, standing with the eleven, that's eleven apostles, the other eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Hear me out. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Translation, it's like nine in the morning and it's way too early to be drunk on cheap, watered down wine. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, uh, verse 16. But it, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. And in the last days, did you catch that? The last days? It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. In other words, when the Holy Spirit was to come, He wasn't just going to come upon certain select key leaders in Israel. It was going to be for all people, regardless of their social status. And unlike today... Children weren't thought of as highly, as highly as they are today. In fact, the ancient Greeks looked at children, they said, they're incompletes. When they grow up and actually can put paragraphs together, why? well, then we'll think about them. Until then, they're lucky to be allowed to live. But Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, which God had promised, and He was going to come upon all people, regardless of their status. Verse 18 even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days, which we are in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Prophesying can be foretelling the future, and it can also be simply repeating what God has said to people who really need to hear it. So they will prophesy. Let's continue, verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, in signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness on the moon to blood. That statement there, the sun shall be turned to darkness, some of those standing there were in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. When He was being crucified, you may recall that from about at midday for about three hours, the sun was blocked out. It went dark. Prophecy was being fulfilled. Let's continue. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. The clock has started. The day of judgment is drawing near. And it shall be, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter explains, look, this is Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. You've been waiting for it. We are not drunk. Us lowly Galileans, are speak. we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and He is enabling us to prophesy in your languages. What you are witnessing isn't the sin of drunkenness. What you are witnessing is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now these people who are hearing this had just been mocking God's work. In fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, the Holy Spirit is now given to all people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. The marks of status like gender, wealth, education, family background, and even past sins are irrelevant. All people who call on the Lord for salvation will be saved. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit signaled that the clock had started and Judgment Day was drawing near. When we were in Ellington, there was a ministry that we our church did every year called Judgment House. And it involved putting on sort of a dramatic play and we'd invite the community to come in. And the idea of Judgment House was to get people to sort of break out of your everyday mold and just think, think for a second, will God actually forgive us for what we've done? Or better yet, to think about the fact that they need to be forgiven. Some Christians in the community were upset that we did this ministry said we were scaring people into heaven. Can I just simply suggest to you that when Peter says things like, the day of the Lord is at hand, judgment day is clunging, or as I put it, the clock has started. But when Jesus spoke about hell, He was warning people, judgment day is coming. The day of judgment is approaching. Are you ready for the day of judgment? Will you be saved? You can be. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men in the audience were in the crowd that shouted, Crucify him, demanding that Jesus be put to death. It's not every day that you hear that you are responsible for the murder of the Son of God, the Messiah. They were accomplices in His unjust death. Could they be forgiven? Rejecting Jesus as Lord ensures that God's judgment remains upon you. Look at verse 22 and following. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. These were people who were aware that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. In fact, that was the last straw. He raised a man from the dead. They were, some probably were aware that when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came down, descended upon him, and then a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son. I am well pleased in him. And This is the very same man that they killed. They, some of them probably ate the, of the lunch, the little boy's lunch that Jesus multiplied into a, a, the ability to feed a multitude. He was attested by many signs from God as they knew. Verse 23 This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Romans did your dirty work for you, but you too are as guilty as sin. But even in that. While you were responsible for this, and so were they, this was all part of God's plan. Jesus, you see, is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. His death on the cross to pay for sins was God's plan. Verse 24, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. with your presence. Now this he's quoting is the Psalm 16 which was written by David in his verses 8-11 through, 11, 8 through 11 of that Psalm. The ancient Jews interpreted this as being about King Messiah. This King Messiah was going to inherit the promise that God had made to David. He had promised him you will always have a son sitting as this one of your descendants will always sit on the throne. Thus Jesus' reign is everlasting. Thus he could not stay dead. Try as you might to destroy him. He rose from the dead in fulfillment of the prophecy. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. There's also a quote from Psalm 110. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Think about that. That is a statement. We We are staking our lives on this. We, you guys, with the help of the Romans, you killed him. We're standing with him because God raised him from the dead. Think about it. Judas Iscariot kills himself in grief. They're, then they, create, they replace him with Matthias. So they've got 12 apostles again. All of them died brutal deaths, except for, as far as we know, John the Baptist. Peter himself, who's preaching, he was arrested. And we know from church history that when he was killed for preaching Jesus... They crucified him. But because he didn't think he was worthy of the honor of dying in the same manner of Jesus, he requested that they crucify him upside down. And that is precisely what they did for him. And so these men are saying, we are all witnesses. They all gave their life for preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Catch that. Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. Verse 34. No, let's pause for a second there. Verse 33. What Jesus is credited as doing is something only God Himself can do. There are some who claim to be sort of Christians and their churches preach that Jesus wasn't really God. To have the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit is something that only God can do. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord is uh, it's, it's not just a kind of a nice name you throw around. It means he's God. Adonai. Lord. Jesus had done miracles from God, proving that he was the Messiah, and yet you had a hand in ensuring that the Romans crucified him we get off the hook because we had nothing to do with that. Well, did we? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The perishing is because of sin and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I might not have been holding a hammer pounding nails into His hands, but I am guilty because my sins required to die to redeem him. Peter tells him, your wickedness, however, was part of God's sovereign plan of salvation. And Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills David's prophecy. In fact, there's about 300 prophecies about Jesus' birth, where he was born, what his parents were like, how he was to die, and a host of other things. And here's David speaking about Jesus. He didn't See corruption. Peter says, David is dead and buried, but Christ, has des- his descendant, has been raised. And his psalm was a prophecy about the one who would inherit God's promise that one of his descendants would reign for eternity. This same Jesus ascended into heaven. He is both Lord and Christ. He has received the Holy Spirit who has been poured out on all who believe in Jesus. This is part of our redemption. The Holy Spirit gives us new life and empowers us to serve God and live for Him. And now Jesus is waiting for God the Father to put down all rebellion on earth. All rebellion will be put under Jesus' feet. But know this, whoever rejects Jesus as Lord ensures that God's judgment remains upon them. To reject Christ is to embrace sin and thus face God's wrath. Many who heard Peter that day were guilty of rejecting Jesus because he claimed to be the Lord and Christ, and so they called for his resurrection. I'm sorry, his crucifixion. They wanted to know, will God forgive us for what we've done? Look at verse 37 through 40. Peter tells them that salvation from God's judgment is only found in Jesus Christ. Now, when they heard this, They were all cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They are guilty and they know it. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. They wanted to know, is there any hope for us? Can we be saved? And they were commanded to repent. That is to change your mind about Jesus. He wasn't just a carpenter. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't just a man. He was Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Whatever you use to think about Jesus, change your mind to align with God. Know that He is Lord in Christ and demonstrate your repentance by being baptized in Him for the forgiveness of sins. You may have committed the most unconscionable sin, but there is forgiveness for all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith. God promises to give the gift of the Holy Spirit To whoever repents of their sins and comes to Jesus for forgiveness. It is part of our redemption. Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, which marks us out as members of the church. It means that we are saved. We belong to Him. We are under His authority. He is our Lord. Jesus also fills fills us with the Holy Spirit, which empowers us. Who empowers us, I should say? To bear witness to Him by what we say, how we live, and even what we do. We bear witness through a transformed life so that we can live righteously. And we bear witness by serving God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation from God's judgment is given to those who receive Jesus as Lord. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were out of that day about 3,000 souls. They heard that Jesus was Lord. They knew they were guilty of sin, and they were told, repent and be baptized. Change your mind. Instead of pursuing sin, repent, surrender to Jesus and be baptized. Baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus means that you are surrendered to his authority. It means that you recognize that he is Lord and you willingly embrace that fact. Repentance begins or is possible because the Holy Spirit has moved in you, has convicted you of sin and your need for Jesus Christ. And so you turn from sins and turn to him and call him Lord. And then the right response is baptism. I've thought a lot about baptism over the last year or so, a lot more than I normally would have. And the thought has occurred to me that while some preach baptism and make it into a work by which we earn salvation, that is not correct. What is correct is is to say that baptism naturally follows as part of repentance because God has been gracious to us. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. If I'm getting baptized to earn salvation, I've misunderstood salvation. But if I'm being baptized because Christ has led me, the Holy Spirit has moved me to turn from sins, turn to Jesus in faith, and and call Him Lord, and then I'm baptized, why then... We are moving in grace. I thought a lot about this. There are some who speak of, well, if you get saved in a a hospital bed and can't make it to church, why, you didn't really get saved because you didn't get baptized. Might I suggest that when you're talking and thinking that way, you have made baptism a work that earns salvation. But for the rest of us, in our climate-controlled sanctuary. It's really not as hard as that. That's an effective dodge. And here's my point. Here's where I'm going with this. If you have made a profession of faith, why would you not be baptized because your Lord has commanded it? If He is Lord, surrender to Him. Be baptized. It's doesn't save you, but it is certainly essential for obedience to your Lord. Salvation is available for everybody. So what about you? Have you received the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized? If not, I simply ask you, do you really consider him the Lord? Baptism goes along with salvation. 3,000 people joined the church. Not a official local congregation. They became part of the church in one day. From 120 to 3,120-ish. Because he says about 3,000. When we see people surrendering their lives to Christ, they are gloriously saved. He says in there, um, even those who are far off can be saved. Now they might have been thinking geographically far off, but you know, you can be Well, a husband can be in the same car with his wife and be miles apart. And you can sit in a church service and be miles apart from God. How do you know that? I did that. And many others do that. But you can still be saved. Repent. And be baptized. This morning we're going to take Lord's Supper and it is something that is only for believers. And perhaps normally you'd want to be baptized first. But this morning, if you have yet to call on Jesus for salvation, you can. Salvation is sort of simple to receive. A lot of times we give a really, sort of in the church, we'll give you a really prettified, beautified, simple prayer. And there's not anything wrong with that. But I think it might be as simple as, oh God, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. This morning, if you come to the place where you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you've broken God's rules, perhaps in ways that you don't even realize. No matter how small you think that sin is, it has driven you from God. And judgment day is coming. That's bad news, but the good news is Christ Jesus came. He lived a sinless life died on a cross in your place, and my place, and He rose again. Because that is so, the forgiveness of sins is available if you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, calling Him Lord. If you'd like to do that, I'm going to lead us in a simple prayer. You can take my words and repeat them to the Lord, but there's no magic in it. To be honest, the calling on the name of the Lord for salvation is kind of simple. If you'd like to join me in doing that, please do. Going to bow their heads and close their eyes. Oh, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've broken your rules, and I need your mercy. I'm turning from my sins and turning to Jesus in saving faith. Please save me, Lord. Please forgive me. Please give me the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you prayed that, God heard you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You are saved. The next step, naturally, would be baptism. I invite you to, to seek me out, or one of the deacons, or Pastor Rob, and let him know, that, or us know, that you'd like to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitanoia, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. Thank you for listening.